Welcome to the Ag Emerge podcast brought to you by Ag Solutions Network. We're here to move the ag paradigm forward by helping you regenerate your soils using new ideas, research, and emerging technologies. Get ready to improve your soil, your crops, your livestock, and your family's livelihood. I'm Kim Sheese. And I'm Monty Bottens. And we're your hosts. Thanks for joining us. Today, we are so excited to have Dr. Dwayne Beck join us from the Dakota Lakes Research Farm in Pierre, South Dakota. Dr. Beck's work on developing and promoting diverse no-till cropping systems played an important role in allowing producers in South Dakota to dramatically improve their profitability while also protecting the soil and water resources, enhancing wildlife habitat, reducing net carbon dioxide emissions, improving air quality, and having other positive impacts. The question is, how do you cover everything that Dr. Dwayne Beck knows in one hour? Well, the answer is, you can't. But what we can do and what we did do is cover some of the key parts of the work that they're doing there at the research farm and the journey that Dr. Beck has been on for so many years to restore soil health. I think Monty said it best when he described it as real solutions to real problems. So let's jump right in. Dwayne, we're really excited to have you here today. And one of the sayings that I've heard early on from you was taking the E out of ET. We had John Hearman from Holyoke, Colorado last week on the podcast and wanted to expand a little bit on that. But a lot of your research has been focused around that, Dwayne. What does that mean, taking E out of ET? And more importantly, how in the world do you do it? Well, the the thing I've always strived to do is to tell people they have to have a water cycle that operates similarly to what it did in the native systems. And then the ET term, uh, there's consumptive use, which is basically what happens to all your water, where does it go? Uh, the stuff that comes off of your land as vapor comes either out of there as transpiration, which is the T part, part that goes through a plant, and the E part is evaporation. And in nature, very little evaporates from the soil. It is utilized and it goes through the plant. So I the take the E out of ET comes down to when uh, if we're talking about Eastern Colorado, which you were on the last podcast, I guess, um, did a lot of work there with Randy Anderson at, when he was director at the Akron uh, USDA station there. And I kept telling him he didn't have enough residue. He wasn't keeping enough residue on the land because it's that mat of residue or that duff layer is the first uh, way you take the evaporation out because evaporation makes you no money. And it causes some other bad things to happen actually in terms of salinity and, and stuff. So that layer of residue, so if you don't have enough residue, you can't, you cr can't really make the function, the system function like it should. If you go into any natural ecosystem other than a desert, uh, the soil is always totally covered. And farmers have seen that layer, surface layer as being a problem. 
And and I, you know, a lot of times when people are here and we we go around the farm, they're just amazed at the level of residue that we maintain. And I continue to say, I think I've got it on somebody's video, somebody that was here one day, but I, you know, I'm saying residue is your friend, not your enemy. It's it's a little bit like the finding Nemo thing. You know, it's it's, you know, um, uh, fish are friends, not food, right? So your residue is your friend and, and maintaining, maintaining that residue lets you take that loss of water out and then you can use the rest of it. And then you start, start building the system. And in Colorado, the problem was lack of diversity in their system. They're doing wheat summer fallow, similar to here. I mean, the, the, things they were doing when we started with things like wheat and summer fallow or, or maybe continuous wheat at times for a little while, but um, they couldn't do the diversity because they didn't have, they didn't have the, didn't have the water, but they didn't have the water because they didn't have the diversity. It's almost a, a trick question type thing. And, and <clears throat> so the first thing you have to concentrate on is getting the residue up and then you, then you, then you have the water to start doing things. Now you flip that around to where you go to the Eastern part of the United States, where your precipitation exceeds your evapotranspiration type thing um, in your crop systems. That's where the cover cropping and all these things come in to try to increase the water use uh, from transpiration so it doesn't, get to be a problem in terms of excess water because if you have excess water obviously that causes problems too so so talk a little bit you hinted there on the salinity part of e out of et and i think that's that's really interesting first off if you reduce your e you need less applied irrigation water therefore you're applying less salts with that irrigation water to the soil that's that's definitely a benefit but i think you were referring more about how salts and water move through the soil differently to evaporate versus moving through roots uh, to transpire. What can you dive into that a yeah, little further? Yeah, and the other the other part of that the other part of that thing is macropores. So once you start no tilling and you get a you know you take a natural system, and I asked this to a, of a guy the other day on the on the telephone, is if you do tillage. Um, he was from Colorado, by the way. But if you're doing if you're doing tillage, which he still was, I said it, it when it rains and you walk in a tilled field, how deep do you sink? And he said, "Well, as deep as I did tillage," <laughs> which is, you know, it's an obvious thing. Everybody goes, "Well, yeah, I sink down to where the tillage layer is." Well, that means all your water has stayed at the surface, and then that water evaporates from the surface, and the salinity stays on the surface. And if you have macropores, the water goes down the macropores and soaks in from the side. And, and then if the roots take it out, those, that salinity stays down there. If, if, um, if you leave it up at that surface, then, then it's, it's gonna leave the salinity at the top. If you exceed how much water you have and don't use it, then it starts to move sideways and goes down the hill, taking the salts with it, and then, and then they, they come back to the surface and evaporate off of that surface. The water evaporates and the salts are there. 
And people will go in and, and till those salty spots. And that's the worst thing you can do. And because that just increases the amount of evaporation in that salty spot and makes it saltier. So, um, you know, they have to dry that up, up the hill somewhere and, and prevent that water from, from moving sideways down in there. And it all, it all really comes from, you know, looking at how the, the natural system works and, and, and try to mimic that, that those cycles. I, I don't think long-term we can do it without perennials in the system because we don't go deep enough. And, you know, our annual crops just don't get deep enough even if we do cover crops. We just don't get the depth out of it. Our, our tall grass prairie stuff here, which we do have it, you have, you have more of it than we do, but our tall grass prairie roots will go seven or eight feet very easily. And, and I know that because I put a frost-free drinker in. You have a solar one. I have one of those heat sink ones that use the soil heat to keep them from freezing. But you have to bury it seven foot deep in order to do that. And so when I dug the pit to put it in, I had, I had grass roots all the way down going past that seven foot area. Amazing. We're going to take a quick break to hear more about the opportunity to join us virtually for this year's Aggie Merge event. We invite you to come explore the possibilities of scaling up regenerative agriculture during Ag Emerge 2021. This year's conference will look a little different as a virtual on-demand event. However, what remains the same is our passion for sharing unique perspectives from thought leaders, entrepreneurs, and forward-thinking growers like you. From the comfort of your home, office, or tractor cab, we'll explore soil health and regenerative agriculture and how you can take concepts to practice in your operation through shared experiences, new ideas, and big-picture discussions. Registration is open. Visit agemerge.com to register today. Well, we hope you'll consider this unique opportunity to hear all the great speakers at Aggie Merge this year, especially since you can join from anywhere, virtually. And now back to our special guest, Dr. Dwayne Beck. So I want to, that leads to the next thing I wanted to visit with you about is looking at those long-term, you know, crop rotations or putting perennials into your system. Really, when Dakota Lakes was started, that was really one of the things you were that early on you looked at was crop rotations and interaction with water. How can we do these long-term type research? Because, you know, research has gotten down to one year or three year projects now versus, you know, 10, 15, 20 year uh, type of impacts from different crop rotations. Talk to us a little bit about that, the history of Dakota Lakes and how it got started, what the initial uh, focus was and how that public-private partnership has has worked and evolved over time. Well, there's really two stories. Um, Dakota Lakes itself was created by a group of irrigators that, because of because of the Pixlone project to stop flooding in the Mississippi Missouri River Valley, they put in a bunch of of uh, reservoirs on the main stem of the Missouri, four of them in South Dakota and then one in North Dakota and one in Montana that are now silting in by the way, but uh, they put them in to control the flooding and covered up a lot of our, our most productive bottomland stuff in the process. And we were supposed to get a half a million acres of irrigation. That was 
that was going to go uh, to the central part of the state because you need to have level land in order in order to gravity irrigate. They're going to do that all with gravity irrigation, which is really uh, kind of bad technique. Uh, and then by the 70s, somebody had invented center pivots. So these guys out along the Missouri River decided they'd pump their own water and irrigate this rolling ground here. But when they did that using their techniques that they used to farm, which was high tillage stuff, they ended up running uh, 70 and 80% of the water ran right back to the reservoir, which didn't make any sense. And that's kind of when we entered the whole thing and, and uh, saw this problem. And we had a, a research guy at the university who I always, uh, research leader guy that I always use as an example. He's long dead now, but uh, he got a graduate student like me some money to do research on runoff just because I showed him what the problem was. And the next thing you know, he gave me some money to, to work on it. And I, I said something to him about that. I said, don't I have to write a whole bunch of proposals and do all this stuff? And he said, well, an administrator's job is to make a researcher's job easier, not more difficult. <laughs> and so every time I get a new boss, I tell him that story, <laughs> use that quote. And I said, if you keep that in mind, we'll get along fine. <laughs> but that was Dakota Lakes on one hand. And then the thing that started the, the, the no-till thing and the rotation thing is we found out that, that if, we, if we didn't do tillage, water went in the ground better, which wasn't the common belief at that period of time. If you go back in the literature, we had trouble getting that published. Um, but if you're going to no-till, dry land or irrigated, um, and you do the same rotations you do when you, you were doing tillage, you, you have a disaster. And that's a lot of the problem we have with no-till in the, in the world right now. They don't change the other things in the system. Uh, I don't know, I, I figured that out because I thought about what my grandfather and father had done with very diverse rotations in livestock and livestock and all these things. So when we started, the first funding we got from like the Wheat Commission was to look at crop rotations in a no-till system. Um, and we didn't do a tillage comparison. We just did no-till, which was way out. I mean, this was in the 80s. And that was early 80s, very early 80s. And that that was really out in left field. That was uh, that because, was bleeding edge right there in the early 80s. Yeah, and, and we had quite a bit of pushback from the uh, scientific community within the university um, on that, the fact that we didn't have a tillage comparison in there. But we really weren't worried about the comparison we had. We'd already gotten to the point where we decided we weren't going to do tillage. And, and part of that was driven by the farm that I was running at that time was the irrigation farm associated with that defunct federal project. It was still there, but my big tractor was a 706. And, <clears throat> and I had a three bottom rollover plow. And, and if I were going to try to compete with the farmers of that day, 
uh, I had had to spend hundreds of thousand dollars in money on equipment. And I decided I'd just go right past him because I was confident enough in ridge till at that time, ridge till and no till that we just not buy equipment, just use what we have. And uh, we bought a, a five row, 30 inch Hineker uh, modified uh, ridge till slash no till planner. And, and uh, I built a, I built a no-till drill of my own and, and um, <clears throat> didn't have the 750s or any of those kind of things yet. And we just went right, right past the deal. And we had some neighbors that were big, just starting to do ridge-till. They're big fans. So everything went pretty good other than the university thought we were crazy. So we, we still did a little bit of tillage at that farm for the research guys that didn't have drills that would handle no-till. But one of the one of the technicians on those projects, a guy by the name of Kevin Kirby, who should have a statue someplace, uh, he worked with me and developed uh, plot drills that were no-till drills, and and put residue managers and closing wheels on their little research corn planters and whatever. So when by the time we came here, we could just say we're not going to do tillage, and that's it. Um, you know the the efficiency of water use thing, especially when the macro pores are involved. You can get that water to move away from the surface, totally change uh, what you're able to do. I mean, it's not an incremental change; it's a very large change. So. <clears throat> When we started, we, we have an 11 member board of directors and every one of those guys was a conventional tiller. And every, you know, and everyone was an irrigator because there's an irrigation project, you know, it, at one time, the, the name of the farm, we had to legally change it, but it was Dakota Lakes Irrigation Research Farm at one time. And so we, in the late eighties, early nineties, we changed that to just took the irrigation up. But, um, Right now, my board of directors are all no-tillers, and I think there's two or three that irrigate some. But almost all the guys that irrigated that were on that board don't irrigate anymore because they make more money if they don't irrigate. They sold their equipment and you know to, got rid of their pumps and did all that stuff. And there's a few that still do it. They have relatively low lift and whatever, but some of them guys are looking at three and 400 foot left, which it, it doesn't make any sense. And, and here even if um, my, my profitability is better on my dry land than the irrigated. Now, the irrigated to us is a little bit like milking cows. It gives us cash flow and it gives us something for some of my people to do that I couldn't maybe one guy I have uh, hired, I probably couldn't afford to hire him if it was just dry land, right? But he runs the irrigators and he does those kind of things. So he has a purpose and then I have a truck driver in the wintertime. And, and he's also my, when my secretaries leave me, he's my fill-in secretary. Uh, so we keep him up to speed on that kind of stuff. But, um, just the water use efficiency difference. And I, you know, I think I've 
showing those numbers several times, but it, um, this central part of South Dakota, we've, we've increased the productivity, um, I think it's $1.4 billion a year in terms of crop production, because they went from, from wheat and summer fallow or wheat something summer fallow to um, 50% of the, the land is in high water use crops, corn and sunflowers and sorghum and soybeans. In, instead of just in small grains and those things. Mm-hmm. So obviously the residue gets talked about a lot, you know, on the surface to help prevent evaporation. Now the macropore allowing when the water does come to the surface to get into the soil profile, that connection is really important. And I see a lot driving around the, the Midwest of people who are raising these higher um yielding crops and they're they have eight-way trait stacks in them and all you know four bte <laughs> events and the four bte events um or the bte events in there are causing a lot of extra lignification a lot of change in the hemicellulose uh structure of the plant you know generally a little less digestible when you do a forage analysis on it but which would also mean uh, the same microbes that are digesting it inside of a cow are, are not able to digest it in the soil. So we have these residue decomposition challenges, right? So, of course, how do we, uh, how do we solve a problem? Uh, we do the Dwayne Beck uh, whack-a-mole farming, and we all go <laughs> out. And I love that quote of yours, by the way. I use it often. We do the whack-a-mole, and we get a turbo-till or, or whatever uh, the latest uh, converted disc is or, or things like that, and it's called vertical tillage, so that sounds cool. That's okay to do. And long-time no-tillers go out there, and they run a vertical tillage tool, and it's like, wow, that looks pretty. Look what happened. Now, I personally call them worm burners because we've just taken all of the earthworm uh, middens and dispersed them and, and put our worms on a starvation diet but we've done something extraordinarily significant there haven't we Dwayne on the macro pore space the interaction between that surface layer and even an inch or two below what have you seen in those those type of well, things not just what I've seen I mean we we looked at all in things at one time or another and and they cause more weeds to grow as well which is the other big factor they 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 really change the weed dynamics but there's a lot of research. You'll cut the infiltration, one pass will cut the infiltration rate at least in half. And two will take it down to about 20% or less of where it was when you started. So, and that's that thing where you're putting that you've got all the evaporation at the top and then you've cut the stocks all loose. And, and, and then when you get a wind or a rain, they'll start moving and going to the ditch and, and those kind of things, which, um, you know, we try to leave, we try to leave our, our corn stalks as vertical and as tall as we can um, because it warms up faster in there in the spring if you don't have all that mat of stuff laying down in below and, and you just come in alongside that stock and, 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 and plant there. When you chop it all up, and the same is true with wheat stubble or any, even soybean stubble, we, we try to keep all the stuff long, which is the opposite of what you would have been told in the beginning of no-till, uh, get the super choppers on there and, 
and chop it all up. But now you got these little tiny pieces and you can't really deal with them. And, and so just, if you got long pieces, you can, it's a little bit like the football games. Yeah. If you have a long piece, you can run around it <laughs> more or less well, and, and, and not try to cut through it. But um, it just makes a real heavy, thick mat, kind of a mucky mat on the surface of the soil when you have that really thin residue. Yes. Uh, and, and then the other thing is, too, is your residue managers aren't as good at kind of grabbing it. When you have that, it's kind of like effective fiber length in a, in a TMR. You know, you right. got to have so much for passage, but not too much uh, to where it don't digest. And, you know, those, those uh, residue managers are, are grabbing, are able to grab that longer stuff and, and clear a row if you're using residue managers, I imagine. Is that one of the advantages? And, and plus a longer straw, you can probably cut with a disc where you can't with uh, shorter ones, you'll just push in to the seed trench. Yeah, the, the thing I use as an analogy there when you went to the barn to jump on boards when you were a kid uh, to break them, which you always said to your dad, you, you didn't do that, but somebody else must have. But uh, the short ones didn't break and the long ones did. And there's a very similar thing going on there. You can, you can actually cut it instead of pushing in the trench because there's enough stuff there holding it to keep it from going in. But it, uh, years ago, I, I made the statement at a scientific conference that you, that you bias your data when you're doing um, tillage comparisons or those kind, that kind of work. You, you bias your data as soon as you choose how you're gonna harvest the, the, the crop. Because if you chop it all up and whatever, that's great if you're doing tillage. But if, but if you leave it long, then, then you, you are better off if you're doing a true no-till. Now, if you're using the whole drill or the direct seed type thing, the Anderson opener type thing, then you want it chopped up again. And the vertical tillage really makes the soil flow. So that's good for the Anderson opener type thing or the, the hoe drills, but it's not what we need for the true no-till thing. So you, you, you start biasing it way early when, when you, how you spread your straw and how you handle your straw. Um, like I never, I don't cut up my soybean stems. Um, I have, I, I have the chopper and the combine just like everybody else, but I pulled the, the knives now, not the flails, but the knives. So I just, I just try to spread that whole stem pretty much on, on cut. Does that help your spread pattern too then, Dwayne, because you got a little more weight and you can fling it farther? I mean, one of the problems I have, 40-foot platform, you know, getting it full width spread is a problem. And now today, what is there, 50-foot and 60-foot draper heads? How in the world can we ever get the residue back to, you know, edge to edge and those kind of things with no wind, let alone a 40-mile-an-hour wind? I mean, do you find that it spreads better when you do that? Well, it depends. I think it'd spread better if we did if we had the old, the old paddles, <laughs> like the old days with the just a paddle on the back and take that long thing and throw it out there. But yeah, no, that's an issue. Um, and I, I told John Deere engineers years ago. I mean, if you're going to make a 40 foot head, you need to make a spreader that'll spread it 40 feet. That should be a, a rule someplace. But um, I think it helps. Uh, you know, we still spread the chaff 
we're still got a fairly old combine that, you know, like a 9410. So it's a, it's not the modern where they put everything together. We still have the chaff coming off a different place than the, than the stems. And, and we still spread the chaff with a, with just a beater thing that flips them out there. Um, mm -hmm. And that's the one that's the biggest problem, I think. So when you're, just to put that in context, so how is your planter set? If you do soybean long stem and you come back in and plant, you do you have residue managers on your corn planter or are you just planting straight in? We're pretty much planting straight in. I have residue managers on there and they're set. They're set so they seldom encounter things most times. So it's just like there was a big root ball or a clod or just some anomaly that it would kick it out of the way, but you're essentially cutting through the entire residue mat and, and right. putting in direct in. How come? Yeah, and, and, and if you go too far north, I think you do have to move some stuff depending on the color of the residue, but soybean residue is pretty dark, so it warms up pretty well. Yeah, that's um, interesting. The, th the thing I say to people why I do that is I say it's hard to put the combine in reverse and grab the fire extinguisher at the same time. <laughs> i got but you yeah just a little I bit stop, of wind and I always back up yep. yep so you spread the the stuff that's in the combine out right so but sometimes it's hard to remember to do that when you're grabbing for the fire extinguisher which is just kind of a joke but it's <laughs> <laughs> well i uh sometimes i have guests riding with me in the combine and i forget to tell them you know if i get a plug on one one part of the the cutter bar or something i mean as soon as that happens, you know, I hit the resume button. I'm in reverse real quick, and they, they're on for a ride of their life because I don't want to pile a bean stubble in one spot. So, yeah. uh, you know, the big machines with heavy weight, uh, it, it's it's interesting when you go from, you know, three and a half mile an hour to a full stop and backwards right away. So um, it, it makes it fun, right? That's why they have sheet, seat belts you're supposed to put on them when they're sitting there. <laughs> hey, I tell you what, on a side note, I had a friend down in, um, I think Tennessee is where he's at, and uh, head fell off driving down the road, and he, he went underneath his combine, ramped oh. him, threw him through the front window, and miraculously, he happened to pull back on the propulsion lever as he was going through the window, and it stopped and didn't run him over. Uh, I mean, it's amazing. So, yes, I do use my seatbelt now after seeing those photos. So, yeah. Um, anyway, uh, back to what you talked about when you use the worm burners. I'm sorry, folks. Uh, that's my term. Um, I'm no, no offense to people running worm burners, but that's what I call them. When you run a worm burner or a vertical till machine and you, like you said, you loosen up all that residue and it blows off your field, that can be a real problem. At the same time, on my own farm, when we do fall cover crop seeding, one of the problems I have running the John Deere 1990 drill, so it's a single disc opener, is I am sizing that residue as I go through. And if we have an extended period of dryness before we get wind, then I'll lose the residue. I, it's one of the problems I have in my system as far as it'll, it sizes that residue as you're going through and it blows off the field if we don't have a rain. What are, how do you get around that? Well, that is an issue. Um, you know, if, if, but if, if the stock is long enough, if it's corn stock or whatever, it's long enough, it's less likely to go. But that, yeah, that was a problem we had a lot of. One of the solutions there is to change your, <laughs> change the orientation of your blades and stuff. And we have done that some, uh, 
in the past and there's some guys in Canada that do that on all their machines but on the John Deere drills um, it's not just the cutting it but it's running over it so um, if you look at the, them from the back I mean everything's getting run over or cut what we did is took the um, front rights and the front lefts and moved the front rights to the other side and the front left to the other side. So now what we have is the two rubber tires. Uh, we have this on one drill to this day, but we have two rubber rubber tires that line up on top of each other. And so then that area between uh, that pair of openers, so to speak, is never gets touched by anything. And it's never, it doesn't have the soil pushed at it because you're pushing toward the middle, you're pushing toward the tires. It's an interesting thing. It's very, it's, <laughs> it makes a huge difference to a large extent, but uh, it's, John Deere could set them up that way in the factory for you if, if they wanted to, but they really don't want to. Oh, I mean, uh, those drills are so much fun to work on, Dwayne. I mean, what's, what's one more thing, right? I... Yeah, well, and that's why a lot of people don't do it. We went to two-inch tires. I don't know how wide your tires are. We did that too. Yeah, and that helps some. Mm -hmm. uh, but the long residue helps some, but yeah, that's a big problem. And, and, uh, the thing we're losing, know, we, and, we haven't had that issue for a while, so I don't know what totally made, made it stop, but it, in, in the early years, that was a real problem. Stripper heads really helped. Yeah. And then, and, and I think the corn head, like our, our, our stock rolls and our corn heads are just like pretty much worn out. The thing that we're losing the most of is the husks, you know, and the husks right. are what come through the combine. So, you know, stalks aren't a problem. They're typically heavy enough and connected. Uh, we get leaf loss um, and that, Husk. you know, really doesn't get, it doesn't get chopped up when it goes through the head, but it's still kind of there and it's easy. It's lightweight, easy to catch wind in the husks. And the problem is, is guess where most of your nutrients are in the husks and the leaves. So... <laughs> You know, you just You're not getting your cows there fast enough. That's well, the problem. <laughs> well, when they're grass-fed, you can't do that. You see, Dwayne, I, <laughs> I was. Uh, we're looking at going to interseeding and and doing more of that on, you know, within the standing corn crop. We did some this year. Had one field that worked very well. Had another field that was pretty much uh, a zero, and one field that was minor, <coughs> minorly okay. Uh, so. I got to get that dialed in too. What, what's been your experience with seed and cover crops within crop? Well, we did a lot of work with aerial stuff. Um, with, with Howard Buffett's money when, when, you know, we, that was one of our things and we didn't have much success out here because our humidity is too low. I know further East, they have quite a bit of luck with just flying it on. Um, we're in 20 inch rows and to, to try to drive something down a 20 inch row is enough of a challenge without having the cedar running in there as well. So we haven't tried to do a lot of that for a long time. Um, you know, we've had, we've had various success with aerial seeding. Uh, you know, we, we can see the satellite results from years ago and, and plus you're counting on your pilot and, and it's a lot to do to not seed onto the neighbors. So uh, fungicides is one thing, seeding is another. Um, 
but that's the next step we're looking to go is getting that timing down and having the right rain. And, and honestly, one of the challenges we ran into is we, we had seven inches of rain after we seeded. So I think we were okay on the moisture. But our earthworms, which we have about three middens per square foot, them little suckers, guess what they oh, yeah. did? Oh, yeah. Because the, yeah. the floor is bare in August. I mean, we do not have enough residue to feed them. I mean, they just they eat everything. And when I went out there to see where this cover crop was growing, there was, you know, three or four things coming out of every midden. They were, they, they seeded it for me. Yeah. I have, I have pictures of cereal rye doing that here years and years ago. And then, and then it, I thought that was great. I was so proud of it. And then. Then you planted a wheat crop. Got about four inches high and they just ate it. Oh, oh, they ate the whole plant. (laughs) They just pulled it right down in the. Oh man, you didn't know you had a fodder system, see? Yeah. So I'm I'm going, okay, well, maybe that doesn't work. So Well, what I'm looking forward to is the seed that went down a foot and comes up sometime when I have a wheat crop. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So speaking of that, um, I think this is always kind of fun to visit about is we always have these grand ideas and these these grand schemes of everything. It's just gonna work beautifully and perfectly, and it's all on paper, and yet, yes, we can make that happen. And then, then you do it, and earthworms eat it, or something kills it, or something goes completely wrong. What are some of the greatest, you know, that you thought were the greatest ideas turned out to be the greatest mistakes, but were also excellent learning experiences uh, in your time there? Well, one of, one, one of the things I have here is I've kept most of those mistakes. In a, uh, some people call it a junk pile. Um, and I have a new guy that just started working for me. And <clears throat> I explained that to him. I said, what this is, is what, when I come up with what I think is a great idea, I walk through here to make sure that I haven't thought of it before. Which, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like you get old enough and you, this idea comes in and you think it's really great. And then I walk through there and go, oh yeah, we did that. Um, and, and this is what didn't work or we did something like that. Um, well, I mean, strip till was one of them, and that was uh, that was in the '80s. We were we started doing strip till, and I I thought that was a great idea, and and one of my good friends thought it was a good idea, and we got all fired up to do that, and 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 then we saw kind of all the problems. I mean, if we if we went out there and strip till, and it turned dry on us, we had our fertilizer where the where there wasn't any moisture. And so now you have to decide whether you want to plant where there's fertilizer or where there's moisture, that kind of decision. If it gets wet and you can't plant your corn, you got a bunch of fertilizer out there that you're you're going to plant beans into maybe, which doesn't make any sense. And it's the wrong time if, if you don't want the nitrogen to go away. So you shouldn't be doing that anyway. So, um, Fertilizer placement is really important, but the right time to do that is at planting. And that's, you know, probably the thing that somebody asked me, what's the most important? I got that question last night, actually, or yesterday afternoon late. And, uh, you know, the most important placement of fertilizer for us is get the nitrogen on uh, in proximity to the corn row at seeding. And strip till does that if everything works. But we just put it on with our planter. Then we're dang sure it goes on to the right place and the right spacing. Because mm-hmm. when you strip till, I don't care how good your 
your RTK thing is if you got hillsides, it 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 your planner doesn't go where the RTK thinks it's going unless you got somebody come up with the idea of putting another another steering mechanism back on the planner, which yeah, that's what we need is another twenty thousand dollars worth hey of now, stuff. Don't, back don't there. be so, making fun of me, Dwayne. Huh? Don't be making fun of me. That's that's <laughs> we, we did that too. <laughs> But since so, you got it, you know, it's not that was the one of those things that we really thought was a good idea. Uh, the the one that it keeps recycling uh, is is some of this pattern seating thing. With uh, back in the eighties, it was all the rage, and you could do it at that time with strip till. Uh, I mean, with ridge till because you knew where everything was going to go. But alternate strips of corn and soybean, for instance, that was really a hot thing, and <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you look at it from a system standpoint, it doesn't make any sense. It was kind of cute. You got the neighbors all fired up and you could grow really good corn on that, that outside row. But you had to go to every field twice when you plant it and you had to go there twice when you harvested and you had to go there twice when you sprayed. And then you had to be careful about how much you sprayed and you couldn't drift from the corn onto the beans. It depends on what you were doing and it may not have been labeled and you couldn't call an airplane in to do anything, but it did add diversity to our system. So, um, you know, I, you know, some of that's going on now with 60 inch corn with cover crops in between and, Maybe if you have livestock, that makes some sense. But it, um, you know, it it was it was it was one of those things that we did. I got some really nice pictures, but then we went, no, that doesn't make any sense, and it's kind of disappeared, pretty much. Yeah, I, I think it's one of those things where it, it makes the rounds in the newspapers, and people try it, and then they're like, yeah. So I'm 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 kind of that trying category. We've had three years of trying the sixty-inch rows and the covers and. You know, yield drag combined with, you know, residual herbicide interactions with covers, uh, just getting the cover crop we need to justify that for, you know, rate of gain on the cattle. That, you know, there's there's lots of things to work out there. One of the things I have seen that I think does have some promise on that corridor type of stuff is if you would have livestock to where you could do maybe 20 feet of corn, uh, 20-foot skip and then integrate livestock and covers and, you know, flip the field itself within its own rotation. But, uh, yeah, crop to crop, you know, like you said, with the edge weeds issues and, and those kind of challenges, I, I think that's, uh, that's, a, that's a problem. And plus you just, to really get the effect, you have to have lots of edges, right? So you have lots of edges. Now you've gone down to much smaller equipment. So it's, you know, a 24-row planter. There's only what thirteen passes in an eighty-acre field, so it's, um, you know, you just limit the edge effect, and so, and you got to cover the acres. Now, I think when we get to swarm type machinery, row by row machinery, we'll probably have to uh, re-record this podcast, Wayne. But yeah, no, I and and I don't know if you've heard me say it, but I, you know, I have said the new, the new big might be small because we're you know managing very small areas and that's the way mother nature would do it is to have these just little spots out there and and manage manage it and i think there's eventually that'll um you know i think it was at your ag emerge conference last year the they talked about these little robots that are about the size of a softball or something that would go out there and i 
I was having this in my mind. I was playing this coyote that would be picking that thing up and going, <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll take this home to the kids. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it makes noise. I don't know if it's good eating or not, but we'll take it home and we'll see try. what happens. <laughs> you had to go find all your things that were buried someplace out there. But, um, but I, you know, like in the, in the ecosystems that are, naturally a forest i think we probably should be doing tree crops with farming underneath and and because you have the moisture to do that and whatever so those things make some sense where you you may be grazing underneath the trees or you're producing vegetables or something underneath the trees but the trees are there doing something on their own and you know if you go to africa kofi boa i mean that's that's his program. It's like a 40 year, 40 year rotation with all these trees and tree crops and things coming through there. So there, there's some room for that out here. We're, we're probably, uh, at least in the near term, we'll be looking at annual crops with perennial sequences being the, probably the thing we're going to end up with. So what is a perennial sequence? Well, we put in, um, five years of, of tall grass prairie that we grazed. I mean, the, the, we started this uh, six years ago where we, we took a rotation that was really bad. It was every other year broadleaf, which we knew was probably not good when we started, but we did it on purpose to show that it wasn't good. And, and then after 20, 25 years, you know, it, it totally degraded the soil. And, and we finally talked to board and they'd love to have that there to show people how bad, how stupid it was, right? And I, <clears throat> I finally said that after 25 years, you know, all the stupid people are, are dead now and we need to show them how to solve that problem. You know, how do you, how do you deal with it? And I'm not sure that all the stupid people are dead, by the way. But No, they just, they just keep coming. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's amazing to me, but <clears throat> so we, so we put in a, a five-year tall grass prairie, half of it grazed and half of it was seed production. So we were not taking anything off. And then now that's transitioned out back into, back into a annual crop rotation. It'll be there for 15 years and, and, uh, and then it'll go back to another five years of perennial. So what was that like no-tilling into that prairie? It was great. I bet that was unbelievable. That was really nice, yeah. Mellow. No, it's it was and we we've done a, quite a bit of taking native native prairie or stuff that was native prairie hadn't been tilled. We've done quite a bit of that where we've transitioned it to no-till farming uh without doing tillage. So we've done that before and CRP stuff and whatever. So uh, that's doable, but it, you know, when you look at that and you kind of alluded this to this in the introduction, when you look at that, um, Cody, the guy who does our livestock stuff, uh, Dr. Cody Zilberberg, he, he was, he and I were looking at it one day and I said, you know, in, in 20 years, you know, we'll have gone through that whole annual psych sequence and then back into perennial again, and we'll really start to learn things. 
And he kind of looked at me and goes, well, you, you, you better make sure you're eating your oatmeal, oatmeal, you know, because I'll be pretty long in the tooth in 20 years, right? <laughs> and, <clears throat> but that's what you have to do. But I mean, farm families have long-term goals. I mean, most farmers want to have their family they don't always succeed in getting that done, but they, their, their ideal would be have their family to continue to run that operation forever. And um, governments and businesses and politicians and whatever have short-term goals. You know, the next election, you know, we got to get this done before the next election or whatever, the next session of Congress or whatever. So, um, I don't know how I don't know how other than a farmer owned entity you can get the long term research done. I mean, we used to have scientists that would would want to be long term to do long term stuff, but um, the grant, you know, the 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 funding mechanism. I mean, we 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 started out good with the land grant university system was done done right, and it was it was the shining beacon in the hill in agricultural research. Uh, still is to a certain extent, but not really. But up until probably the 1980s sometime, because uh, the money went directly from, from the federal government to the states and the state sent it to the, to the, the Ag Experiment Station and they determined how to, what to do for research. Now it's all determined in uh, Washington, D.C. what the priorities are and, and there's grant RFPs, you know, grant requests for proposals, grant, grant stuff comes out of D.C. And then, like you said, it's a one or two or three year deal. And, and so everybody <clears throat> isn't, isn't focused on, at the university, isn't focused on, gee, here's a problem that farmers are having, and I'm going to do some research to try to solve that problem. What, what happens is I have a grant to do this and we're going to do this. And nobody says, does that make any sense? Right? Nobody's really said, you know, there isn't any farmer input in terms of, you know, that doesn't make any sense to do what you're doing, but they're going to do that because there's a grant to do that. And then it's three years. And if they don't get another grant, they may not have a job. I mean, our, my job isn't that way, but most jobs at the university now are basically pretty much dependent on grant funds because mm -hmm. the legislatures don't want to fund it and the, and the federal government isn't funding it anymore. So I, I don't know how that all started, how it happened. Um, my first boss saw that happening and said, this is going to destroy us. And when he hired me, you know, I said, I don't have money, enough money to do this or that or the other thing. And he said, well, you're not going to gain more from, from me because I don't have it anymore because it's all coming through grants. So you either have to write grants or you have to figure out a different way to make money. And what we did is start focusing on our production enterprise. When I got him to let me keep the money from the production enterprise, we start focusing on making money there that would augment what we could do elsewhere and 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 now i got a board you know you have a board that that they have similar similar views so they have some long-term goals so how do we 
um, how, how do we create another Dakota Lakes research farm? <laughs> really, I think one of the things, I think there's a couple of interesting concepts. First off, you've got farmers who are doing a good job, have built their own system over time that I think needs some documentation or rather than trying to, you know, start from scratch and hope to get some information from 20 years later, can we backfill some of that information with farmers who are doing a great job and learn from real world experiences, you know, where we aren't limited by 706s and three bottom trip plows, you know, um, how do you, how do you do that? Can you do it that way and have kind of a, a virtual farm, if you will, or virtual research farm to where we're documenting what farmers are actually doing? Is that a possibility? Or secondly, is there another public-private partnership sandbox opportunity at another location, you know, i.e. Uh, Cambridge, yeah. Illinois, where we could, you know, set up, <laughs> set up our, uh, you know, long-term, turn our farm into a Dakota Lakes? And, and how, how could you make that happen? Well, we're in the process of trying to get get one in the Jim River Valley in South Dakota now. Like the, the original farm that I managed was in the James River Valley, which is where we were. And that's where that <clears throat> that's where that water from the Missouri River was gonna go. And when we came here, somebody made the decision to close that one when this one opened. But anyway, they, you know, they left the Jim River Valley and that was, uh, that was a huge mistake. And, and that's really the breadbasket of the Dakotas right now and has been, and they, they just have no research presence there. And we do have a farmer who was a, who was a um, long-term no-till guy that when we started at Redfield with the no-till, he caught on and he's in the Jimmer Valley. And he has no children and um, he wants to take his land and use it as a lever to start one in the Jimmer Valley. So we're in the process of, of uh, they've put together a board of directors and they've formed a 501c3 and they're waiting for the IRS to give them tax exempt status. And that's a start. And then, and then you need the university to be willing to partner. Because I think you do have to have the scientific home there somewhere. Because farmers can do this on their own, but it's good to have, have the scientific buy-in there. As, as much of a problem as we are at times. <laughs> oh, and I, I think it gives validity and then also has the ability to take what you've done and, uh, you know, have it published in peer-reviewed research and, and make more of an impact in a larger area. So it definitely... I think we can, I think we, the bottom line is I think we can do this everywhere. Um, I've had, I've had communication from Alaska. They want to try to start one. Uh, I have a guy in Utah, they're trying to start one. Um, and, and there are some tricks to it. And, and, um, but I think it's doable, but it, it just takes a lot of commitment. But Absolutely. Farmers, you know, on their own land, they can't really afford, they can't really afford to just try a bunch of things that, that, aren't necessarily going to work. I mean, there are a few farmers that do that. The true innovators just go try wild, crazy stuff all the time. Right. But, 
but they're usually not the ones that are real successful. The, the, it's better to have somebody else do the true innovation and then the early adapters and, and those guys are the guys that make the, make the money. And so our role here is to be the true innovator, to do the really stupid stuff that, that's kind of crazy. But, um, you know, my favorite story about this is when we came here, we were just on the early phases of knowing how to no-till, you know, 1990. I mean, there really wasn't a lot of deep-seated knowledge in how to really do no-till farming. And we had, a, like I said, an 11-member board of directors of all tillage guys and all irrigators. And I went to design the irrigation system here. And I, you know, when I looked at it, if I, if I committed to being a no-tiller, I could put in smaller pumps and those kind of things, smaller pipes, smaller pumps. I didn't need the machinery that I'd need if, if we were going to do tillage. So I brought two budgets to the board and I said, if we commit to being strictly no-till, doing nothing but no, no tillage comparisons, whatever, just strictly no-till, this is a number and, and here's the other number. If we're going to do tillage there, it's going to cost some more, but it, you know, it's your decision. And they had a long discussion, like a couple hours. And finally Ralph Holsworth, who's like one of our first lead guys just said, I know how to farm with tillage. I don't know how to no-till. So let's just no-till it, see what happens, <laughs> right? Because it wasn't his money. Now, the next year, he, you know, he, I went and seeded one field for him. I said, I'll seed one field for you with my machine, but it's got to be the same quarter section field here as a quarter section. Um, I said, it, it's got to be the same quarter every year. I'm not going to do this one this year, another one next year. Just I'll do that one. And after the first year, he liked it so much, he just sold all his machinery and bought no-till equipment. But, you know, it, <clears throat> but it, it's, you know, he could see then that he wasn't going to be making a big mistake. But otherwise, if you go bombing into the wall, uh, eventually you're going to figure something out, but you're better off having somebody else do it. And we're doing it on smaller scale. Mm -hmm. You know, we do stupid stuff on, 48 acres, but not on the whole works. Yep. Very good. Well, final, final question. I want to, to wrap up our time here together is what's the future hold for Dakota lakes uh, and team members there and, and for you and Ruth. Well, um, they're attempting to hire a new manager and have been for a while, but you know, eventually uh, and then I've agreed to stay on and help mentor the new manager for a year or two if they want me here. They may decide they don't want me in the building, which would be, that's their prerogative. There's just a lot of moving parts here. And then I don't know, we're, we're probably, there's, there's places in the world that need to do what we're doing a lot worse than the U.S., you know, where if, if you do something wrong, you might not have food. You know, here we've got better safety nets, so we might do some of that. Um, we don't have any grandchildren, we have a dog. That <laughs> We have children, but no grandchildren, and we have a dog. So 
we have to take care of him, but we'll probably travel. I mean, I, I would like to do some biking in France and Italy and England and whatever, uh, Holland, maybe some of those places. And, and for our listeners, that's not the, um, type of biking that you're thinking of with a Harley and, and those kind of <laughs> this is, this is the type of biking where you're, where you're running pedals, uh, in a circular motion. So bicycling, that's a big passion of yours, isn't it? Well, it's, yeah, it's something that it beat, run, it beats running. <laughs> you got to get exercise. It's, it's a lot easier on the body than running and, and, uh, you cover more ground. So very true. No, I think, um, uh, you know, your leadership that you're providing with these other opportunities. And like you said, James river and that Alaska group, Utah group, I think there is a, a real opportunity for you there uh, in the future for you uh, to provide that leadership to really look at. So we started with uh, extension, then it then ARS was kind of 2.0, and, and maybe this is a, a 3.0 version uh, to you know bring it back to what we need, uh, real real solutions to real problems. And uh, yeah, I, I just you know if you look at what Kofi Bo is doing in Ghana with the Center for No-Till Agriculture, and he's getting some support from Howard Buffett there, which is if you're gonna throw some money in, into uh, development in agriculture in, in Africa, that's the way to do it. And, and it's, it's locals teaching locals and farmers teaching farmers and uh, very much a ground, ground uh, up type thing. And that's what we are. It's farmers prefer to learn from other farmers that's the real key. And, and, um, the secret is to, to be the guy that's kind of teaching the lead farmer. If, if there's some science there and that's the guy that, that lead farmer is a guy that wants to know, know things. And, and so if you can help him, then he'll help all his neighbors. And, and with the electronics, we have, you know, stuff like you guys, I mean, we can get information out really well now. Yeah. Um, Used to be the farm magazines probably, and now I think it's the podcast. But the farm magazines were uh, very integral to our early work. Uh, Larry Rickenberger and, and Gil Gullickson and Daryl Smith, those guys were all really good friends of mine because I used them. I, I'd say, here, here's an article, <laughs> you know? And, and they, they did the technology transfer for and now it's it's more electronic, but in YouTube's, I mean, I got guys that call and they say, "Well, uh, here's YouTube and whatever." And I'll, you know, we have a virtual field day that we did this last summer that I'll send you the link for, so you can you can post that up because it's quite good actually. Um, we really couldn't have people here, so we did a day of video. And they they edit it all down and and I'll send you I'll send you that that link. I really appreciate that. Anything else you want to add for the listeners today and uh, before we we wrap it up here? Well, it's going to go back to normal someday. <laughs> I I had a dream last night about you know going to meetings again before I woke up and <laughs> went no not yet but anyway. Well, I, 
you know, Dwayne, I, I really appreciate it. Um, you know, I've met you and discussed with you several times at conferences, and, and that is something I'm looking forward to getting back to. Uh, I really appreciate the time that you hosted Robin and I at the farm and uh, got to see what you're doing and digging the soil with you. You're most comfortable in the field. Uh, I think uh, you're, you can tell that you really, really love what you do and, and have a, a passion for it. So I hope whoever they do select as your you know, predecessor that they have that same key ingredient of, of loving the field. And uh, I sure thank you for being our headline speaker last year at, at Aggie Merge. It was wonderful to have you there. Um, been a lot of positive feedback from California farmers on what you had to say. You really helped change some minds on how to think differently in farming. And uh, I just, I really admire everything that you've done to contribute to no-till and systems research. Uh, you are a true pioneer. You're an innovator of innovators. And uh, it's, a, it's a real joy to know you and, and to have you here today. Well, thanks for having me. Like I said, you do, you do the work for me. So <laughs> technology transfer is easy. Just tell you about it and you'll get it out. So, <laughs> Well, we appreciate it, Dwayne. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you. What a great discussion today with Dr. Beck. And remember how I said it's hard to cover everything in one hour? Well, there's some great news. There's a link in the podcast to the 2020 Dakota Lakes Virtual Field Day featuring Dr. Beck and others, and it is a power pack series with some great content. You're going to want to check it out. Have a great day.